Welcome to episode 56 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. We are here at uh, 104 Broad Street and uh, enjoying some fellowship together after our men's Bible study. And uh, Pastor Ross isn't able to be with us today as our third host, but I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Gabriel Williams. How you doing, brother? Very well. Very well. Wonderful. We're here today to talk about a very important topic, uh, namely the topic of biblical hermeneutics, or that's kind of a fancy word for interpretation. Uh, in our day, there is a lot of uh, bad uh, biblical interpretation, a lot of poor hermeneutics, uh, people getting the Bible to say things that the Bible really isn't saying. And uh, we want to talk for a few minutes about some principles uh, of biblical hermeneutics that would help us to understand what the Bible is actually saying. That's right. And so I guess the first thing we can start with would be the big picture of the Bible. And so like any book, and many of you probably have seen this in high school, the first thing they teach you about reading a book is to find out what is the gist of the book before you really dig in. So the same basic statement you can say about the Bible. What is the Bible about before you get to the details of each individual book or each individual passage. I know the answer to that. Uh, what's the answer? It's about me. <laughs> it's all about me. Well, that's that's the uh, selfish version of that. That's the evangelical yeah. response, right? Now, this is something that Jesus himself directly addresses. And so this is from Luke chapter 24. And this is the passage after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And this is... After Jesus approaches two disciples and they are not sure who he is and Jesus questions them and we enter in uh, based upon verse 25 where he says, And he said to them, the disciples on the road, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? So he's speaking about what was required for Christ to fulfill all the scriptures in terms of being the Messiah. And then verse 27 is one of the major keys of understanding the full scope of the Bible. Verse 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Hmm. So you can see that as your first overarching interpretive key. That when you read the Old Testament, you should think of the Old Testament as promises concerning the Messiah. And when you see the New Testament, you should see that as promises fulfilled or realized in the Messiah. Promises made, promises kept. Exactly. And so that means at the end of the day, one of the more basic questions you should ask yourself is, whatever part of the Bible you're reading or whatever book of the Bible you're addressing, how does this fit into the overall narrative of promises made concerning Christ and promises fulfilled concerning Christ. Yes, and another uh, helpful way to understand uh, the big picture of the Bible is to recognize it as law and promises. That's right. Law and promise. So you have your uh, indicatives, mm -hmm. which are telling us something about God, telling us something about man, telling us about uh, uh, our Savior, telling us about uh, uh, hell and heaven. We're, we're learning things about doctrine. 
imperatives are telling us what to do That's right. uh, in response to that. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people, of course, will uh, confuse these things, and they will actually see imperatives or commands as a way by which they earn their way into heaven. Mm-hmm. If I just do this, and if I don't do that, why then? I will be acceptable to God mm-hmm. uh, in the end. Uh, but that is an improper way of interpreting Scripture. Uh, we must embrace the promises of God in the gospel uh, in order to be saved by grace. And it's the commands that not only show us our sin, but also teach us as those who are saved in Christ how to live uh, the Christian life. So that's an right. important way to understand Scripture as well as indicatives, imperatives, uh, law and gospel. That's right. So you can say that's your beginning statement to say, we know that the Bible is about Christ, either in promises made and promises fulfilled. Next thing I would say is that when you look at the Bible, the Bible is a collection of literature. And this is not to say that it's not inspired. It's simply to say that the Bible is written under different types. So in your high school language, remember this from genres of literature. And the point is that not every portion of the Bible is written in the same type of literature. So much of the Old Testament, for instance, you have the first five books, which would be what is called the Pentateuch. So you have narrative passages there and you have kind of legal law documents there. Yes. And so you would not interpret legal documents in the same way as a narrative passage. And so one of the helpful things to do in terms of reading the actual scriptures to ask yourself the next question, what type of literature am I reading? Is this a narrative passage? Is this a law passage? Is this poetry? Is this a... Yeah, you have the Psalms yeah, yeah, and Psalms. Uh, Proverbs, which would yeah. be more of a poetic genre. Yeah. And so you have multiple different types of literature. And one of the things that uh, we've learned just from our standard schooling is that there are rules of interpreting different types of literature. Probably the hardest type of literature to interpret is what we call the apocalyptic literature. The stuff that sounds like Revelation, Daniel, etc. But much of the Bible is not that. Much of the Bible is kind of narrative, actually. And that means there are certain ways you would read a historical story, in this case. And so one of the things I uh, teach uh, kids in college about reading narrative stories is, can you figure out what the tone and mood of the passage is? Because that dictates if you're understanding what the author is conveying. So an example would be, if you're reading through, say, <clears throat> the crucifixion scene, there's obviously meant to be a mood that's invoked there. It's not meant to be, oh, okay, well, a crucifixion happened, you pass on. The authors speak about the pain and the passion of Jesus so that you enter into that account sure. and are gripped by it. Sure. Whereas there are other passages in the Bible where it appears that there's kind of mocking going on. So think of... Uh, Elijah mocking the false prophets of Baal. There's kind of humor there a little bit where mm-hmm. um, Elijah is saying, well, maybe you need to cry a little bit louder because yeah. maybe your God can't hear. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's doing something else. Maybe he's relieving himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so the mood of the passage helps to kind of give you a sense of what the passage is trying to inform you. Yeah. And one of the best things about narrative passages in the scripture is that the author's feeling he's trying to convey is meant to kind of interpret what you should understand about that passage. And scripture, uh, as it reports things, mm. isn't necessarily condoning things. Exactly. 
you know, we read uh, about those who were involved in polygamy mm -hmm. uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, a lot of times it's simply reported that this is happening. Yeah. And there's not necessarily a word said about it, except mm -hmm. that they were it was happening. That's and, right. and that doesn't condone it. Mm -hmm. People cannot uh, think that, oh, well, the Bible reports this, so it must have been okay to do. That's well, no, right. so much of the scripture speaks against uh, polygamy uh, mm -hmm. and, and this kind of thing. So uh, we need to, to remember that just because the Bible says that something happened mm -hmm. or reports that something happened doesn't make it okay. That's right. That's right. And then we have the New Testament letters. So think the Pauline epistles where it's not narrative. It's clearly not poetry. It's meant to be what we would call straightforward didactic teaching. It's meant to convey doctrine and precision. Now, one of the things that the reformers spoke about very clearly, and you read this in the confessions, is that there's a simple rule for biblical interpretation. Scripture interprets scripture. And oftentimes, when you want to go to a clear, if you want to understand the clear teaching of a scripture, go to the clearest passage that teaches on it. So an example that uh, I gave the teens at Christ Church, for instance, is if you want to learn about salvation, you probably wouldn't start in the Psalms, right? <laughs> you would probably start somewhere in Romans because you have very clear, straightforward sort of teaching. And that means, in terms of interpreting those type of uh, letters that are written, it's meant to be didactic. You're meant to learn doctrinal doctrine precision from it. So that means the key for interpreting epistles is to see, one, what is the arguments being made? So, in essence, what is the problem that's being addressed? And secondly, what is the reasoning through which the problem is addressed? Yes. There's a gospel logic yeah. there. And if you... Uh, read through Romans uh, and just sort of skim along, you, you may not get that logic, but mm -hmm. it takes time and study mm -hmm. and thinking to mm -hmm. pick up on that. And once you get it, then you not only see it in Romans, you see it all over the Bible. That's right. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Gabe, about the importance of seeing the big picture, mm -hmm. uh, the Christ-centered picture of, of all of Scripture. And mm -hmm. And again, once we get that, we mm -hmm. begin to understand that the Old Testament is not simply a collection of stories and sayings That's to right. help us become a better person. Mm -hmm. It's not just uh, there so that we can be like Daniel and be like Abraham and uh, be like Moses and be like David uh, or don't be like them in their bad days. Yeah. Uh, That's not what the Old Testament is primarily about. I'm not denying that we shouldn't learn from the, the, the good things and the bad things of those who are in the Bible. Of course, mm -hmm. we learn from their examples, but that's not the primary thing. The primary thing is that the Old Testament, as was mentioned before, is about promises being made. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see those promises either being rejected by the people of God mm -hmm. or received by them. That's right. We see those involved in gross idolatry and who receive God's judgment for it. And we see those who uh, would not bow the knee to Baal mm -hmm. and uh, continue to embrace those promises. And all along, God is faithful, mm -hmm. whether his people have, have rejected him or not in, in, uh, in general. God has always been faithful and his promises are always set forth. So from, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelion, mm -hmm. the first preaching of the gospel, that, that uh, through the seed of the woman, the head of the serpent would be crushed, which we know is Satan. All throughout the whole Old Testament, we have this promise essentially coming mm -hmm. forth from the prophets. 
and through uh, the agency of the people of God uh, uh, with the temple worship, with all of the prophecies, with the types and shadows that are there in the Old Testament, Jesus is being proclaimed. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus mm-hmm. is the true Israel. That's Jesus right. is the true Son of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the temple sacrifices of of the innocent lambs that are being uh, that are anticipating the person and work of Jesus Christ. Passover mm-hmm. uh, is pointing towards Jesus um, over and over again. The, the very uh, three main offices in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king all find their realization in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. So once you get that, uh, once you see Jesus on every page, as it were, uh, you then understand the Old Testament properly and you're able to gain from it as more than just a series of moral maxims and, and stories that teach us how to be good. That's right. Uh, but we see grace in those. And, uh, and in the New Testament, of course, we, we recognize that the New Testament is helping us to understand the Old Testament better as mm-hmm. things are clarified through the teaching of Christ, through the teaching of Paul, through the teaching of Peter, mm-hmm. through the teaching of John, and so forth. And also, to kind of piggyback on that point, understanding the harmony of the Bible means that you understand the New Testament better. Because the New Testament isn't just a isolated account. Yeah. It's meant to have Old Testament metaphors and allusions attached to it. Yes. And so an example of this would be when you read in Exodus, the actual Exodus account, you're not meant to say, well, that finished and we're moving on to something new. You're meant to kind of say, how is that going to be pictured in the New Testament? And what that helps you to do is to help you read the Gospels better. Because yes. what you see in the Gospels is a parallel account of what goes on in the Exodus, where you have the people of God in a sense captivity, oppressed, oppressed by, in that case, the Romans, so to speak. And you see that Jesus is, in essence, being established as a new or greater Moses who is leading his people out of captivity into, in this case, the promised land, or in this case, into salvation. So what that picture means is that when you understand the Old Testament better, you understand the New Testament better as well. And so the unity of the Bible, the harmony of the Bible is never meant to be ignored. So one really good thing to kind of notice when you're reading the Gospels for account is, is there an Old Testament reference that is trying to be employed here? And oftentimes, if you have a a good standard Bible, your Bible will have a middle section that has cross references. Mm -hmm. And those cross references will not always just be to other New Testament passages. It will point you back to the Old Testament. And that's meant for you to kind of piece the dots together here. And that's how you deepen that harmony you see in the Bible as well. And what that also means is that when you see the promises being fulfilled in in the New Testament, you now have a deeper, richer meaning of why it's been put there in the first place. And so a lot of the Gospels, I think, is a great way to see that. The book of Acts is another great book to kind of work through how the Old Testament helps you to understand the book of Acts. And so harmony of the entire Bible is the most important overarching context to kind of get when you read it. Another important uh, principle of biblical hermeneutics or interpretation is that when you seek to understand a passage of scripture mm-hmm. you must see it in its context that's right not not so if you're thinking about say 
John chapter 3, for instance, mm-hmm. a well-known chapter, yep. especially verse 16. You need to think about, first of all, the whole scope of redemptive history. Mm-hmm. In other words, the view from 30,000 feet, the whole yeah. Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we know that the Bible teaches? This is why both biblical theology namely the unfolding of the story from mm-hmm. Genesis to Revelation, and systematic theology, namely understanding heads of doctrine, yeah. are both important. So we're getting the view yeah. from 30,000 feet. And then we zoom in a little bit mm-hmm. uh, with our zoom hermeneutical yeah. zoom lens, and we say, all right, uh, how do we understand uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises? Mm-hmm. And then we zoom in a little more and we say, what's the book of John focused on? Mm-hmm. What's the Apostle John uh, essentially saying in his book? Yeah. And then we zoom in a little more and we say, all right, uh, how do we understand John chapter 3 in light of what has just happened in John chapters 1 and 2 yep. and what comes after it in John chapter 4 and, mm-hmm. and following? So we're looking right around it. And then we zoom in a little more and we ask, what is this chapter really teaching what's happening yeah. between uh, uh, Jesus and um, uh, Nicodemus Nicodemus yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that right yeah Nicodemus yeah Nicodemus I don't know why it just has a mind blank on that uh, so we have to ask uh, all of these questions and and recognize that that uh, you have to look at the big picture and then zoom in and ask the question what is this passage teaching its first century hearers Mm -hmm. or readers? And then how does it apply to those first century hearers and readers? And only then, when we understand its primary application to the people of that day, do we then get uh, an understanding of how it will apply to us in the 21st century. Because if you leapfrog Mm -hmm. the initial interpretation, you will create all kinds of problems and have all kinds of sloppy interpretation and application when it comes to the Word of God. That's right. And that's why it's been said the number one rule for interpretation is context, context, and context. Yes. And that's because even when you don't understand a particular verse, the author's intention and context is what's meant to shade and help you to understand that particular passage. And kind of what you mentioned, that's true whether or not you're reading narrative, but it's also true when you're reading the epistles, that you have the sentence itself that you're reading, the context that's immediate to that will be the paragraph, you then have the chapter, and then you have the book. Another really nice tool to kind of get is that when anyone writes a story, uh, whether it's a biblical or non-biblical author, one thing to notice is what is being repeated. Because repetition is meant to inform something. And so one of the things, you know, when you read Paul's writings, there's something you always see repeated. In Christ, in him, with him, union with Christ. There are certain phrases that certain authors like to repeat. And when an author repeats a phrase, what should clue in your head is, aha, he's repeating it, so he must have a very foundational reason why. Oh, yeah. When you read the book, when you read John's writings, for instance, you see things like light and darkness, life and death being repeated over and over again. So a good way to kind of see if you're understanding and following the author and kind of getting absorbed in the book is to see, are you catching the author's repetition? 
Now, Hebrew poetry is very similar. There's lots of repetition in poetry, and you can see that in the Psalms. Also, you can see it in the Proverbs. I mean, if you read Proverbs, the first thing you think of is how many times does Solomon himself repeat the importance of wisdom? Yeah. He's driving it home so that you understand this is the core principle that you're meant to drive from it. Another way to zoom in even more would be to understand what individual words mean. That's right. Um, so in this chapter, in John chapter 3, Jesus is in conversation with Nicodemus. He's talking about being born again. Mm -hmm. uh, what would be some synonymous terms for being born again? Well, uh, regeneration. Mm -hmm. uh, being made alive in Christ, Ephesians mm -hmm. chapter 2. Uh, uh, we, we have language in... First Peter about uh, by the grace of God that we have been caused to be born again. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a monergistic work. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we think about the, the term born again, we have other parts of Scripture that help us to further understand yeah. the richness of that, that, that uh, phrase. We also have in verse 16 the word world. For mm -hmm. God so loved the mm -hmm. world that he mm -hmm. gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we have to ask the question, well, what does world mean? For mm -hmm. God so loved the world. And what does love mean there? Is it his general love or is it his fatherly saving love? And how does this connect with the whole doctrine of predestination? Mm -hmm. um, does God love uh, those who are going to hell in the exact same way that he loves his son or that mm -hmm. he loves us who are united to his yeah. son? Mm -hmm. uh, well, the answer is no. Yeah, um, uh, you know, so there are these questions. What does it mean to perish? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Um, some would have unorthodox teaching about what it means there to perish, namely that their soul is destroyed and uh, the kind of annihilationism. Mm -hmm. uh, and we look at the word perish there and we look at other parts of scripture and we see the doctrine of hell clearly mm -hmm. yeah. taught. And so we know that when we read the word perish, what the Bible is actually teaching about this word and, and the doctrine of judgment. Uh, so it's all very important. We see the big picture, but we zoom in, context, context, context. We even look at individual words and try to understand them, not only in the context of where we are, but in other passages as well. That's right. And kind of piggyback, one of the reasons that it's often you see a lot of misinterpretation of passages is because it's very easy to take your 21st century mind and try to impose it or make it fit the actual passage. And that's why when we talk about context, not only does the interpretation of the passage depend upon the context, so does the way the word is used depend upon the context. So, for instance, what you just said about world, that's not just a generic statement that you go to the Webster's Dictionary, look up world yeah. and say everything and then you put it back yeah. here. Yeah. What you say is, how is John using world in this paragraph, in this sentence and etc.? Yeah. So it ultimately, when you, you know, we keep repeating it <laughs> for a reason, yeah. but context matters. Context not only defines the interpretation, it also governs how the author uses his own words in this passage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, so important that we embrace these important principles of biblical interpretation That's so right. that we read our Bibles well. And, and one thing as well that we talked about uh, earlier uh, before this podcast, Gay, was the importance of, of congregations 
watching how their minister is yes. unpacking a text. Mm-hmm. So in the tradition of the Protestant reformers, uh, we preach straight through books of the Bible at Christ Church Presbyterian. Right now, mm-hmm. I'm preaching through uh, the book of Daniel, and we have preached through a dozen books over the past four years. Uh, and each time, we start at the beginning, mm-hmm. we preach straight through to the end, and are always helping everyone to recognize uh, what's going on in the big picture and also what's happening right there in yeah. that particular historical event or situation. Okay. And and so... Uh, Watch your pastors do that. When, when Ross uh, and I are, are preaching through books of the Bible and as we are commenting and as we're, t- we're looking at the, the view from 30,000 feet and then coming down to look at the actual words and what they mean, mm-hmm. take notes and take mental notes about how you will read your Bible That's in the right. future in your quiet time so that you will get the most out of your Bible reading and, and understand the Bible uh, properly. So this has been, a, I think, a good conversation, a needed conversation, as uh, there could be nothing more important than, than how we read our Bibles. And see that the Bible, I made the joke at the beginning that uh, the Bible is about me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of evangelicals think that way. It's a very individualistic, uh, narcissistic mm-hmm. kind of view of the Bible. Well, the Bible is about me. When I open it up, it's... It's talking about me mm-hmm. and my needs and my felt needs and my wants and, and my dreams and my hopes. Mm-hmm. And really, the best thing you could do is to recognize the Bible is not about you. That's right. It's about God. Mm-hmm. It's about Christ, His Son. It's about salvation and judgment. That's right. Uh, it's about man's great need for a Savior. Mm-hmm. That's what the Bible is about. Now, are you a part of that story? Yes. Well, yes, insofar as you are either in Christ and saved by that grace and that mm-hmm. Christ or outside of him and a part of the narrative of judgment. Mm-hmm. But we are not the main actors. That's right. And we are not the directors and producers and authors of this story. <laughs> God is. That's right. And we are, as it were, those who are a part of the story, either as those who have embraced the truth. Mm-hmm and the grace of God in Jesus Christ, or have rejected it. We are either the sheep or the goats, Matthew 25. Uh, So let's read our Bibles well. Let's read it often. Uh, Let's let's develop habits of grace, and let's read our Bibles uh, in the way that they ought to be read and understood. We thank you for being with us on this episode of Between the Times. (laughs) 